This morning we are in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Helday, Tobijah, and Judea, who have arrived from Babylon, and go to the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest in his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helday, Tobijah, Judea, and Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. For the past two decades in our country and much of the Western world, our political system and our legal system have made great strides in um, meeting the needs of the disabled. Uh, we, we see it in the way of ramps and we see it in the way of elevators and, and many of you in corporate life and office spaces that are reconfigured to meet the needs of those who are disabled. Um, if you're not physically disabled, then much of this is just kind of noticed, but it doesn't have that personal impact on you. Um, even here, we have a ramp that leads into this place so that someone in a wheelchair, but you probably don't have that appreciation for the ramp that someone who uses a wheelchair might. And so what we do is we say to ourselves, well, I'm not impacted by it because I'm not disabled. From a spiritual standpoint, the Bible says just the opposite. Biblically speaking, every single one of us woke up this morning and on our own, we are radically and completely disabled. All of us on our own are unable, because of the spiritual disability, to worship God. All of us on our own, because of this spiritual disability, we're unable to overcome sin and live a life that brings God glory and honor, even though that was the very purpose by which we were created. Unable to manage our lives in such a way that God is not offended and people are not hurt. Every one of us woke up this morning and apart from the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ, we're unable to deal with the very fact that one day we'll stand before a holy God and have to give an account for our whole life. Unable to bring God glory. Now like it or not, that's the truth. And apart from power on high and intercession on high, you will remain totally disabled. And so we get to Zechariah chapter 6. And we get to the end of Zechariah chapter 6. And we find in this passage today, if you were listening closely when Pastor Todd was reading it, we find a, it's a climactic epilogue. Uh, some of the commentators call it an appendix. An appendix sounds like an appendix or an appendage or an add-on. It's not an add-on. It's a culmination. It's a climax. Because what it does, these verses take all eight, vision, all eight visions that we've already looked at and they redirect them properly. 
And they direct them specifically to the per- person of Jesus Christ. And we have, a, we have a crowning here. I mean, the, it's not hard to understand this word that's given to Zechariah. We have a crowning taking place, a coronation. A crown is being placed on a man's head. And the reason that's happening is because all the visions God wants us to see and understand in the context of the high priest and eternal king, Jesus Christ. Not another type of Messiah who would come. Not another Moses. Not another Joshua, the high priest here. But a man who would come and fulfill the office of high priest and eternal king forever and ever. A man who would come, a Messiah who would come and overcome your spiritual disability, overcome my spiritual disability, so we can live this life that God created us to live, bringing him honor and glory. The one who would come, the high priest and king, who would bring about all the promises and all the judgments of all eight visions. Those that you rejoiced over and those that terrified you. This high priest, this eternal king, this Messiah is going to come and he's going to fulfill them all completely. Some he already has, some yet to come. So this morning, let's, let us have a look at this word of the Lord that came to Zechariah, verse 9. And by God's grace, and it will take his grace... You know, the longer I preach and the longer I teach God's word, the more I am absolutely convinced that apart from the Holy Spirit, taking that word and doing that work on someone, it it doesn't stick, it doesn't stay, it's not received. And so by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, you will hear from the word of God and you'll respond correctly. And if you do, then praise God, because it's a work of him in you. I want to look at three things this morning. One, the coronation. Two, the conquest. And three, the consummation. The coronation, the conquest, and the consummation. Let's look at the coronation first. Verses 9 through 11, we have a movement here to shift. And Zechariah goes into traditional prophetic mode. Instead of seeing a vision, he becomes an audio receiver, right? And he hears a word from God. Now, this is the traditional mode that we see throughout the Old Testament prophecies. God speaks to a man, a prophet, and that man then speaks to his people. And so we're moving out of visions and into hearing. And in verses 9 through 11, the prophet is given four imperatives. And they're very, they're very easy to understand. And it gives us the picture of what God wants to communicate. He's told to go, take, make, and set. Go, go, take, make, and set. Look, he says, go to Heldai, Tobijah, and Judea. Take from them silver and gold. Make it into a crown and set it on Joshua the high priest's head. Heldai, Tobijah, and Judea. You say, who are these guys? Never heard of them before. They, were, they had just been added to the, the post-exilic community. They had just come to Jerusalem and they had money. They had gold. They had silver. They had resources. Likely, there's debate on this, but likely from the diaspora Jews who were out in the empire who wanted to see the temple built. And so resources were coming in from the Jewish people. And so they came. They had money. They stay at Josiah's house. And uh, God tells Zechariah to go and get something from them. Now, this word go, it's repetitive and it's emphatic in the Hebrew. I know we, we miss it in the translation. In fact, there are several aspects of this translation that are hard and not so good in the English that I want to look at. This is one. It's an emphatic literally go. It says literally, 
you yourself, Zechariah, go on the same day and go to the house of Josiah. Right now, I'm telling you. So he got this word of the Lord and he went. He said, well, what's, what's the urgency? We, we spent an entire night having eight visions and now suddenly, can he, can he get a little rest? No, he needs to go. Why? Why so important that in, before these eight visions are communicated to the people of God, that this act of coronation, this crowning take place on Joshua the high priest? Why? Well, we know why. Because some of these visions we love. Right? I mean, you can probably think of the one, oh, I really, I really loved Christ when he was standing in the myrtle trees. I love that one. I loved it when Joshua was standing there and he was filthy in his robes. And then the angel of the Lord came and he said, put on the holy garments and put on the, the royal turban. I love that. You go, I know the ones I don't like. I don't like that one about the basket. I don't like the basket. I don't like the one about the chariots. And so what do we do? We say, I like these, I don't like these, and I'm going to take them and I'm going to mix them around and make them fit my theology, my perception of God. Or worse yet, we get caught in the secondary issues. What is that dapple horse, right? Why didn't that red horse, the chariot, go out? And we get all, instead of what? Instead of what? Instead of our eyes being fixed upon the one that all the visions were about. Zechariah is told to go to immediately to this house and make this crown and crown um, Joshua the high priest so that all eight visions will have the proper context. So that all eight visions will point to the high priest, the eternal king, the Messiah who was to come. And I pray by God's grace you do the same. That you see all eight visions as you go back and you study and you read and you meditate yourself. You see they all point to Christ. And they all end in Christ. And they're all fulfilled in Christ. So God tells Zechariah, go to Helday, Tobijah, and Judea. And take from them what? Take the silver, take the gold that they probably brought. I I mean, I imagine they didn't bring it thinking, oh, God's going to take this and make a crown out of it. No, they brought it for the resources of rebuilding the temple. But God's going to redirect these resources to make a crown. A crown of silver and gold. Now this, again, in the Hebrew, it's actually the word crown is plural. So it's multiple crowns. You say, wait a minute. But he's going to be placing it on one man's head. So, in the Hebrew, if, if you have a plural word, it can mean multiple crowns, or, and some of you already know this, it can mean something of ultimate or supreme value. Right? So, if there's the idea of a multiple crown, would be the ultimate crown. Multiple might mean something like supreme. In other words, this crown that Zechariah was commissioned to make was no ordinary crown, it symbolized the crown that would be placed upon the head of the high priest, eternal king, Messiah, who was to come. I mean, and we understand, so silver and gold, you go, well, that's easy. I can figure that out too, pastor. Silver and gold, so, silver and gold means that there's great worth upon this person upon whom the crown will be placed. But there's something else in that. And almost all the commentators picked up on this as well, that the silver and gold would require two, at least two strands, one silver, one gold, representing what? The office of priest and the office of king. And so this was a special crown, not only its value, but this was a special crown because it revealed this Messiah as the high priest and the high king. It's exciting. There should be some excitement here because this is exciting stuff. I mean, this is prophecy as clear as it gets. 
And then he's to do what? So he's to, he's to take, he's to make, and he's to go and place the crown where? What does it say? Set it on the head of Zerubbabel. No, no, that's not what it says. But you think it would. It says, set the crown on the head of Joshua. Well, now wait a minute. Joshua's the priest. Zerubbabel, remember the vision? The two olive trees? He's the guy that represents the king. He's the governor. He's the seated prince. The Jewish prince, right? So the crown should go on his head. In fact... This was so difficult for many theologians over the years. The liberal theologians, if you read a liberal translation or commentary, they switch the names. They take out, yeah, that's that's the right response, sister. They take out Joshua's name and they put in Zerubbabel. And in so doing, they miss the point. The entire purpose of the crowning of Joshua is to point to the crowning of this priest who is to come. And the reason they struggle with it, this word for crown, it's never used in the context of a priest. Ever. The word for turban that we saw in the previous vision that was placed upon in vision 4, that was placed upon Joshua's head, very different word. This term for crown refers to royal office. And so you can see their struggle. Joshua the high priest already made clean by the Lord, is now receiving a crown of royalty. And so the priest becomes a king. And it was confusing for them because these offices were always distinct throughout the entire nation. Right? It was always distinct. We had a priest and we had a king. We have an olive tree and an olive tree and they represent both offices. But here the two are being combined into one. This crown was symbolic. And it was to point directly to the king priest to come. The Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah. 500 years later, they'd have to wait 500 years, but he was going to come. And he was going to come as the high priest and the eternal king. In the line of who? In the line of success. He's succeeding Mekilzadek. You say, Mekilzadek? Where are you getting that guy? For those of you, you you know, I mean, Mekilzadek, he's talked about in Genesis 14, and we see him in in the book of Hebrews as well. Because Jesus Christ did not come from the line of Aaron. He came from, and what's so amazing, Joshua here, is he's the successor to Mekilzadek, who will then be preceded by Christ. Christ will come. Genesis chapter 14, the king of Salem is the priest who goes to Abraham, and it says, to, it says in the Bible, blessed be, he says to, to Abraham, who was then Abram, blessed be Abram by God, most high creator of heaven and earth. In other words, we, we're, we can go back to Genesis in the beginning and see this priest-king office, and then we can hit Josiah and fast forward right to Christ. And we have this lineage being played out. And you heard me read it. David confirms that this Messiah would be a priest and a king. And that he would hold both offices together. You heard me read it from the Psalm 110 this morning. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Mekilzedek. 
this crowning has a singular purpose. And that's to get every single person who's going to hear these visions and hear this teaching to stop and go, they're talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the Messiah. This teaching, for everyone who hears it today and who has ever heard it throughout the history of the church, is supposed to point to Christ. Have you ever, have you ever been out like in a crowd and you see people like this and they're pointing at What does everybody do? And you have suddenly hundreds of people looking up, right? And there doesn't have to be anything there. But if you point and step, you know, a few people do that, everybody looks. This is what God is doing with Zechariah. They're going to take Joshua the high priest. They're going to bring him before the people. They're going to put a crown upon his head. And they're all going to say to everybody, look. This is a symbol. He represents the one to come. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. You say, all right. So I'm looking. What am I looking at? What am I looking for? How will I even know that it's him? How do I know the one that you talk about Sunday after Sunday is him? They certainly would have had those questions. Let's look at this conquest, shall we? <laughs> this had to have been, for a per- from a personal standpoint, one of the most disappointing coronation services in all of human history, right? Josh was brought up. The crown's placed upon his head. And then we're going to see in the next session, they take it off and they go, but it's really not yours. We're going to put it in the temple. You're not really king. You just represent this king to come. You're not really king. In other words, they're saying to Joshua, you, you are standing as a symbol of the king priest to come. This is not your party, okay? So the coronation is going to be really short. Now, the NIV, unfortunately, if you have the NIV, and I don't even like the ESV on this, nor the NASB, but so we'll do this. The NIV renders this, if you have that translation, in Zechariah 6, verse 12, it says, Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Zechariah did be talking to uh, Joshua. Here is the man whose name is the branch. Now you hear that, and Zechariah goes to Joshua, and he's hearing him say, Here's the man whose name is the branch. And you might think to yourself, Joshua, the high priest, is the branch. The branch of David, the Messiah to come, which is a fair understanding or a mistranslation. It literally says in the Hebrew, better. Ready? It says, behold a man. Symbolic. Branch is his name. Much better. Behold a a man. Not Joshua the high priest. Behold a man. Symbolic. Branch is his name. In other words, it goes back and it affirms what we learned in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8. Remember that Joshua and all the priests that were with him, they were symbols. We were even told that. So this isn't even a hard one to, to work out. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, you are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. So it's not, it's not Joshua. The branch is not Joshua. This branch who is to come is going to come and fulfill all eight prophecies. This branch who is to come is going to come and enable us by the power of the Holy Spirit and His sacrifice on the cross to overcome our radical and total disability. This branch who's going to come is going to come and restore the heavens and the earth so that all of mankind will hear of the glory of God. They will know that this is God. So let's do this. You going to be patient with me this morning? Or are you going to say, hurry up, I'm hungry, let's eat? 
you be patient with me? Yes? <laughs> We're not going to answer. If we don't answer, you can't hold us accountable for saying, okay. There are six... There are six aspects of this high priest eternal king. Six that are revealed either about his character or how he was going to sit and rule. And they're embedded here and they're, and they're, they're extraordinary. I thought about dividing this up and I did. I had two sermons going. But they were so disjointed. I'm like, no, it's, it's you know, like Lord of the Rings. I've just got to have to put them together. You know, it's, it'll be, it would be too disjointed. So look, let's look quickly and then we'll go back. First, we're told that this man, verse 12... Is going to branch out from his place. Now, most of us read that and we think what? He's going to branch out like a tree. He's going to branch out of the four corners of the world. That's not at all what it says. I mean, it says that, but that's not what it means. Okay, so what does it mean? Literally, again, bad translation, out of his place he shall grow up. In other words, what it's saying is this priest king to come... It's not that he's going to branch out. I mean, he, he does that. The Bible says that, right? We know that he goes to the four corners of the earth. It's saying that he's going to, this branch is going to grow up in their midst. He's going to be one of them. Okay? First thing. Second thing. God reveals that this branch of David is going to build the temple of the Lord. Now, before we look at this in detail, stop thinking physical temple. Stop thinking stone and mortar. This branch is going to come and he's going to bring... The kingdom of heaven to earth. He's going to build the temple here on earth, which is his bodily presence. So when you think temple, I want you to think the presence of God on earth, dwelling with man. Number three, God reveals that as a result of this priest king's faithfulness in building this new everlasting temple, he will be clothed in majesty. The ESV renders it bare royal honor. In other words, he will be worshipped. But what's so important about this, he's going to be worshipped and honored as a result of his work. Not the glory that he had before the creation of the world. Number four, God tells us the branch shall sit and rule on his throne. The, The New Testament tells us that all authority and all power has been given to him on heaven and on earth. In other words, he will be the king of kings and the lord of lords. Number five, we're told that he shall be a priest on his throne forever. In other words, the high priest will intercede on behalf of mankind from a position of power and authority. The priest is also a king. And lastly, God tells us that he will bring the council of peace that shall be between them both. Now, again, I apologize, but that's a poor rendering as well. It sounds like that the king and the priest will have peace. They will stop fighting, but they're not fighting. It's not talking about peace between the priest and the king. It's talking about peace between God and man. And this priest king would bring it. In fact, the word council there, it's not used between two parties. That word council is an action that goes forth. And so what's going to happen? This priest king is going to present action to the world. He's going to bring forth a means by which there can be peace between God and man. Because as a result of our sin, there is none. And what I love, all six of these prophecies talking about this branch of David, this high priest eternal king, all six reveal what we cannot and will not do on our own. All six. None of them we will do, none of them we can do, none of them we desire to do. Look really quickly. He'll branch out from his place, he'll build his temple, he'll be clothed in majesty, he will sit and rule on his throne, he'll be a priest on his throne, and he'll bring the counsel of peace to mankind. Fantastic. 
And they hear that, and they probably said, come now. And he says, I will, in a little bit. And they say, well, how long? 500 years. What? 500 years? Can you imagine? 500 years? It's nothing for God. 1,000 years like a day, a day like a 1,000 years, 500, it's half a day. No big deal. But for them, they're probably thinking, come on, come now, come now. So what I'd like to do, assuming that you are willing and able, I'd like to look at the last part of this sermon, the consummation. Which, and I want to do that by going back and looking at each, all six again. And I want to look at how they are fulfilled in Christ, and more importantly, in that fulfilling, how we ought to rightly worship Him. I mean, what, what impact should this have on us? Other than, thank you for the Christology. Now I have a better understanding of who Christ is, the prophecies fulfilled, and what. Instead of just that, which I hope there's that too, that what's my right response to this teaching? How should it change me? How should it change how I worship? Let's look at the last point, the consummation. And if you're excited because you think I'm there early. Verse 14. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helde, Tobijah, and Judea. I, I apologize. I had to change a word here. They, they do, you know, the ESV at times, they get so picky on stuff. Um, so, what I, and I kept it in here in the original. It says Hen. If you see that, Hen is not another person. Hen is Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Okay, so if you see that, it's the same person. Okay, it's Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. So they're told that those who are far off shall come, verse 15, and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So the coronation service is over. They've placed the crown upon uh, Joshua's head. Everybody's there and everybody's excited, and they go, okay, give us the crown. Imagine he's like, what do you mean give you the crown? And they were to take the crown and they were to place it inside the temple. This is extraordinary. Why? To remember. So that that crown would become a permanent symbol in the temple for all the generations to come to look to the eternal, the, the, the high priest and eternal king. A physical symbol in the temple for them to look to. That all the promises would be fulfilled by him. Now, in studying this and reflecting upon it, I think how blessed, I mean, how, how immeasurably blessed we are right now living in this time. Because not, not only do we have the Bible, and do we have the Bible, I mean, most of us have a copy or two or twelve where God speaks to us. And in the Bible, like they, we have all these hopes of the future, right? I mean, God talks about a new heaven and a new earth and Jerusalem coming down and his dwelling being with man. And I get a new body and you get a new body if you know Christ. And that, and that dwelling will never end and his rule will never end. We have all these promises to look forward to. And they're extraordinary, every one. But we have more than they have. Because we have a revelation that was in many ways completely fulfilled and in some ways partially fulfilled in the high priest eternal king they were waiting for. He's come. So we have a history to go, unbelievable. We see Christ. And we have a future we say, unbelievable. He's going to come again in glory. Which means what? Which means, saints, we of all people, in all of human history, we of all people, 
And I, and, I, and I think you could really argue that case right now. Have so much revelation given to us. That we are absolutely without excuse. Of aligning our lives with his voice. And living in such a way that he is honored and glorified. We have the past. We have the hope of the future. And we have it in codified form in the canon in a Bible that we hold in our hands. It's unbelievable. It's extraordinary. So you say, all right. All right. You still with me? Okay. If this crown was made and placed upon Joshua's head and then placed in the temple for us to remember who this man is, this priest king, what he did and what he's going to do, I have a question that goes before that, and that's, how do I know God's going to be faithful to these promises? And how will I know he's the one? I mean, we've got types and shadows of priests and kings that fill the Old Testament. Because, well, that's not the one. That's not the one. He's like the one. He's a type of the one. He's a, but it's not the one. How do we know? How do we know that God will actually send this eternal Joshua, this ultimate high priest, eternal king, who will do these things, who will fulfill these prophecies? Who will fulfill all eight visions? How do we know that he's going to come and he's going to sit on his throne and he's going to intercede for us? Because that's an important part of this whole dialogue. Intercession for me because I need it as a sinner. How do I know? How do I know that the the Jesus Christ we talk about all the time is not another type of Melchizedek? How do I know he's not just a shadow of Joshua the high priest? How do I know there isn't another one to come? Let's have a closer look, shall we? And if you do, if you follow me on this, we go back to these six, I'm going to show you, it has to be Christ. It must be this Jesus. And if that's true, then he is the eternal, he is the high king, he is the, the priest, and therefore what? Therefore we should worship, we should follow, we should serve. But I get ahead of myself, so let's go back. It says that he will branch out from this place. Literally in the Hebrew, I said to you, he will grow up in their midst. Better translation. The Bible teaches that Jesus of Nazareth, he came from the line of David out of the tribe of Judah. He was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. And he grew up as the son of Joseph and Mary in Nazareth, the region of Galilee. And in so doing, he literally fulfills Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, where the prophet said 700 years prior, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. You see, that's not sufficient. I have more. Luke chapter 2, verse 52, tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. You know the story. He was born in a manger. He came as a baby and he grew up in their midst. They saw him. They witnessed him. When he was only 12 years old, Luke tells us that on one of their annual family pilgrimages to Jerusalem for one of the high holy holidays, Jesus spent three days in the temple. It says, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone heard him. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. He was growing up in their midst, fulfilling this prophecy. Even, even John the Baptist, this is his cousin, John the Baptist, 
the, the faithful forerunner to Christ. Even, so they, they, they grow up, and who knows the interaction they had growing up. But there's that amazing episode in Luke chapter 7 where John the Baptist sends his disciples to Christ. And you remember the question? He wants to know, are you the one? Because I'm looking at all these prophecies, and it's all lining up. Are you the one that's going to branch out? Are you the one that's grown up in our midst? Or what? He says, or should we look for another? I'll read it to you. When the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who, who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? So what did Jesus say? Yes, I am. He didn't. What did he do? He replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And that's all John needed to hear. Because Christ is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. The priest king spoken of again and again and again would not be another. He would come from their own people. He would come from their own land. He would come from the tribe of Judah. He would come from the line of David. The Bible tells us he was going to be born in Bethlehem. He was going to be raised a Nazarene. We know all this ahead of time. Centuries, I might add. And from his seemingly insignificant beginnings, we are told that he is going to accomplish this magnificent work. What is it? The second prophecy here. That he will build the temple of the Lord. Now, what did I tell you about the temple when I say that? What are you not thinking? Stone, mortar, building. Not thinking that. You're thinking what? You're thinking the presence of God dwelling with man. Okay? The presence of God dwelling with man. And if we stay there, then our target's always on. As soon as we think about structures, we're off. By coming to earth as a man, the Apostle John tells us of Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word, Christ, became most of you have this memorized, flesh, and made his what? Made his dwelling, his temple, his tabernacling, his abiding with us. So Christ came as the temple. That's why the dialogue in John chapter 2 is so fantastic, remember? He goes in and he starts, he's making a mess in the temple of the Father. He's just scattering stuff everywhere. The... um, The uh, Pharisees come to him and they say, how dare you turn, he says to them, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? And the Jews demanded, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Right? So the dwelling place with man was in the temple. And then Christ comes and he replaces that. Now the dwelling place with man is Christ. He is the temple. And Jesus, they want a miracle. And Jesus says, I'll give you a miracle. Listen. Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. <laughs> to which they replied in an understandable response. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled, they remembered what he had said and then they believed the scripture And the words that Jesus had spoken is so amazing. It's so amazing. They think back, oh, he was talking about himself. He is the temple, right? So Christ comes. He comes as a man. He lives a sinless life. He dies a criminal's death. He's buried and he rises from the dead. Why? To build his temple. To make a dwelling place for God and man here on earth. 
And it was through the destruction of his temple, his body, his blood, that he was able to establish a permanent dwelling place between God and man, right? Sin separates us. He dies as a result of the sin. There's atonement that's given. And now God and man can come back and dwell together again through Christ and in Christ. And apart from him, you can't. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus, speaking of himself, said, On this rock, and I have this picture of him tapping his chest, upon this rock, this Petra, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He says, I will build my church, my temple, the temple of the Lord. He has started, he is building, and he will continue to do so. By the power of the Holy Spirit, starting with the outpouring of Pentecost, every single day, the Lord saves people one by one and brings them into his church, into his holy temple, making them members of his body, building, fulfilling the building of the temple of the Lord. And that's why Paul, when speaking of the church in Corinth, listen closely, this is you. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know? That you yourselves are God's temple. We are. Not the building. Not a building. But we. And that God's spirit lives in you. In other words, this is a holy convocation. This is a holy gathering of magnitude I couldn't begin to describe to you with words. This, right now, a holy people set apart to bring God honor and glory. You thought, I thought I was just coming to church. You are the church. We are the church. And if this is true, if our understanding of God's church is the building of the temple that Christ started and continues, if this is true about who we are, uh-oh, maybe right. <laughs> Should it not give us a love and concern and watch care over the bride unlike any other, shouldn't it? If we are the church. Shouldn't this produce in us a deep desire to know one another and serve one another and minister to one another as his body? Shouldn't our relationships then within the church supersede all those outside the church. Not meaning we don't have, but shouldn't this be, I mean, if we are brothers and sisters bound together by the blood of Christ, shouldn't this be where the relational priorities start? Because certainly they're going to go on for how long? Forever and ever. What we begin here and what we do now lasts for eternity. Shouldn't this then be the place where we want to bring people. Shouldn't this be the place where we want the unsaved to come and hear Christ and be saved? Shouldn't this be the place where we want those who are saved, who don't have a bite to come and know the sweet fellowship of the body of Christ? Shouldn't it minimally produce in us a desire to gather and worship and serve one another. Minimally. I mean, let's do baseline theology. Minimally. That we want to gather. And we want to sing. And we want to pray. And we want to proclaim. And we want to serve one another. 
If we find ourselves forsaking the gathering of saints, as warned in Hebrews 10.25, if we find ourselves failing to encourage one another daily, as we're called to in Hebrews 3.13, if the bride of Christ has become secondary to anything or anyone, marriage, children, grandchildren, job, Facebook, no offense, brother, video games, name it. If the bride of Christ is secondary to anybody or anyone or anything, then we are not loving the bride of Christ as Christ loves his bride. The Gospel of Mark. I love the Gospel of Mark. It's just right at it. You say, I like it because it's short. (laughs) In the Gospel of Mark, an extraordinary encounter between Jesus and his biological family. You remember this? Mark chapter 3, Jesus is ministering. He's in a house. People are thinking he's out of his mind, so they go and tell his family. His family comes. Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him, to call Jesus. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Listen. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother sister and mother. Jesus Christ, in a single teaching, redefines relationships all together. He's saying, this is family. We are family. Do we live like it? Do we minister to one another like it? Do we serve one another like it? Do we sacrifice like it? We're family. His church. In coming to earth and dying on the cross and rising from the dead and sending his Holy Spirit, our high priest, eternal king, is in the process of building his church. This isn't it. You say, praise God. This isn't it. Right? He's not finished yet. He is building. You say, well, what is it going to look like at the end? I'll tell you. Revelation chapter 21. The vision given to the apostle John. He said, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, listen to the language, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And we will hear a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling temple, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The temple will be complete. No more building. Building done. Christ comes. Bride married. So there are two qualifications. Christ is going to grow up in their midst. He's going to build the temple of the Lord. The third thing we're told here is that this priest king will be clothed in majesty. It says to bear royal honor, but clothed in majesty is, is a better way. There's an adorning that will take place. Now, this clothing, this majesty that he will receive, I said it earlier, it's what he will receive as a result of his building the temple. It's not the glory and honor and majesty he knew before the foundations of the world, before creation, when he, the Father, and the Spirit were together. 
It's a, it's a majesty and a glory and honor that was going to be given to him by the Father as a result of his great work in building the temple. It's a gift. But this process of building, this process of, of, of bringing together us this morning, it was not going to be accomplished by him being clothed in majesty initially. Just the opposite. He was going to be clothed in dishonor. It was going to require he go to a cross. The road to the cross was not one of glory and majesty. It was a road of immeasurable suffering and complete and total humiliation. While teaching and healing and ministering to the least and the last and the lost all of his life, we're told by the prophet Isaiah that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. None. Isaiah tells us that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Now, for those of you who are still cognizant, you say, wait a minute. What about the crown? What about the crown? There was a crown that was placed upon Joshua's head and it was taken off and it was put in the temple to remember, to remember Christ. Shouldn't that crown be taken out of the temple and placed upon his head? What's the answer? Yes. He should have been crowned with that crown because he's the one, he's the priest, he's the king, two strands, gold and silver, it's him. Did we crown him? Mm, We crowned him. We crowned him. What did we crown him with? Silver and gold? Did we adorn him with a royal robe? Matthew chapter 27 tells us They stripped Jesus, naked, by the way. And they put a scarlet robe on him, not a color of royalty. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head. And then they put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. They crowned him, but not with silver and gold. They crowned him with the crown of thorns and they pressed it into his skull. They worshipped him, but not sincerely. They bowed down and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. But in all of this, our Lord was not detoured from his mission, which was to bring God the Father glory. Out of his immeasurable love for God the Father to do his will and bring him na- his name glory. Out of his immeasurable love for us to save us and redeem us and sanctify us so that we too will glorify his Father. He stayed this course. He didn't say, this is the wrong crown. He didn't say, this is the wrong robe. He stayed the course. All the way to the cross. All the way to hell for us. Hebrews 12 tells us, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Not being clothed in majesty he rightly deserved. Not being adorned with a royal honor. Not wearing the crown of silver and gold. But disgraced as a sinner condemned to die on a cross. When the high priest, eternal king that Zechariah had prophesied to came, we didn't adorn him. We didn't worship him. We killed him. We crucified him. 
We didn't put a crown of silver and gold. We put a crown of thorns on his head. We failed to worship the king. But the Bible tells us in Hebrews 2 verse 9 that God crowned him with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered this death. We were supposed to crown him. Instead, we killed him. So what did God do? God came and he said, I will put a crown on him. Because he suffered this death, but it wasn't any other death. Listen, this death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For you and for me. So that we don't have to taste death. In other words, he died this death that we might be set free. Free from what? Free from sin. Free from death. Free from being totally spiritually disabled. Free to him. Free to know him and to love him and to worship him and to serve him and to obey him. Free. To be the people that God created us to be. A holy temple. You say, that's sufficient. You need not go any further. I agree, but we must. Number four. We're told that the priest king will sit and rule on his throne. I know most of us as freedom-loving Americans in a republic democracy say to ourselves, throne, bad, right? No, throne, good especially the one who would be seated on it. The angel Gabriel announced to Mary, Jesus' mother, before he was born, something extraordinary. The angel said to Mary, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. What an extraordinary prophecy given to a mother yet to give birth. I mean, imagine, she's saying to herself, yes, she's thinking these things, right? She stored these things up. She treasured them, the Bible says, in her heart. And she's thinking to herself, my son is going to be a king? This is Mary, married to Joseph. It's a big deal. He's going to be a king. He's going to be seated on a throne. He's going to rule over the house of Jacob. I dare say most parents today in this economy are hopeful if their children get a, gain, a job and make money. It says he's going to be a king. And he was a king and he is a king, but his kingship she would never see. I take that back. I, she did not see in his earthly life. She didn't see it. In fact, she saw just the opposite. When Jesus is arrested and brought before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor in Jerusalem at the time, we get this incredible dialogue. John 18, listen. Pilate summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He wants to know the same thing we want to know. Is this the guy? Is this the one? Is that your idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priest who handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Jesus said, Listen closely. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, and Pilate replied flippantly, what is truth? What is truth? The truth is this, Jesus Christ is king. The truth is that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. 
The truth is that all power and all authority has been given to him. He came for the purpose of testifying to his kingdom and his kingship. He died for that purpose. Now, whether you or I believe it or not, does not change the fact that he is a king right now. And then he says, those on the side of truth will listen to me. Those on the side of truth will listen to the king's teachings, to the king's voice as he's revealed in scripture. Those on the side of truth will listen to the king's desires and his plan of redemption. And they will submit to that plan and they'll come underneath that plan and they'll participate in it. Those who know truth and listen to truth will hear this king's voice and they will follow joyfully. Zechariah tells us this king is not just a king, he's a priest as well. And he's a priest on the throne forever and ever. And you say, I'm satisfied with what I've heard thus far. You ought not be. Because Zechariah tells us that this priest will ascend the throne. In other words, this king, who is also a priest, who sits in a position of authority, will intercede on your behalf, both now and forever, until you're glorified in the presence of God and made clean. You say, why do I need that? Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that Jesus Christ did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. But he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. In other words, this news is so miraculous for you and me, those who are spiritually disabled, those who are still, we still struggle with that sin. And it means this, that in your safe state, when you sin, it doesn't mean that you then are condemned to die. How many of you have sinned since you've been saved? I better see every single hand go up. If you think you haven't, we need to talk about something else. Every one of us has sinned since we've been saved. So what happens with that sin? What happens? The Bible says, confess your sins. Because he who is faithful and just will will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How does that happen? This is how it happens. The king is a priest. And the king, who is a priest, sits in a position of authority. And when you sin and you seek forgiveness for that sin, the priest petitions the father. You say, that's good. But on what grounds? Not ours. Not yours. He doesn't say to the Father, he doesn't intercede on our behalf by saying, he or she, they're really not that bad. Yeah, I mean, they screwed up this time that. But they're really not that bad. No. What does he do? He presents to the Father his sacrifice. He says to the Father, forgive them because of me. Forgive them because of my blood. Forgive them because of my work. And the Father, who glorifies in the Son, says every time, Of course, of course, your work is sufficient. Your sacrifice is sufficient. I don't know about you, saints. This is an incredibly comforting passage. Because I know that when I sin this afternoon... I'm now not condemned to die. The, the, the blood does not now come back on my head, but I can go before the Father and I can seek forgiveness for my sin. And the one who's seated on the throne is also the priest and he intercedes on my behalf. That's where the hallelujah, praise God, something. Something. Hebrews 7, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. 
Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Listen, because he always lives to intercede for them. He's interceding for us right now. How many sins have we committed in the last hour? Probably too many to count. He's interceding for those right now. Lastly, before you die of dehydration or need to use the bathroom, the priest king, through the sacrifice on the cross, through the intercession, would bring the counsel of peace to mankind. And I love it. And it's saved there at the end because it reveals so much. What's going to happen? Jesus Christ is going to come as a man. He's going to live a sinless life. He's going to die for our sins upon the cross. He's going to be buried. He was buried. He rises from the dead. He's resurrected to new life. And Zechariah tells us that in this, he's going to build his holy temple, the church. And one day, when he comes again in glory and honor, he's going to be seated upon his throne as king and priest. And what does all this mean? He says, I don't know. What does it all mean? It means that Christ, in the dual office of priest and king, will come and bring peace between God and man. That's what it all means. All of it. The judgment, the mercy, the myrtle tree, the chariots, the horses, the cleansing. It all means that God, through Christ, will do this mighty work. And he will bring peace between God and man. And that's where our hope comes from. Because apart from the work of this high priest and eternal king, we have no peace. Apart from him doing all this, we have no hope. Because we know, and we know, when we're really honest with ourselves, and that three o'clock hour in the middle of the night when you're lying there in bed and you're contemplating the depth of your sin, you say to yourself, how can I be saved? Don't deny that. I know that you know that. I know that. How can I be saved? Oh, what a wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from this? This priest, this king. It's our only hope, saints. He will bring peace where there is no peace. A peaceful coexistence on earth with God and man. That God will come. And I read to you from Revelation chapter 21, and he will dwell here. And he will say, I will be your God and you will be my people. And we will commune together and live together and dwell together forever and ever. Peace between God and man. Peace between man and man. I don't you long for that too? No more strife, no more contention, no more battling. Peace. It's through the combined role of Jesus Christ as priest and king that God the Father, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, reconciled to himself all things making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. And that's why the prophet Isaiah said so long ago, and was so right because it was a word from God, that this priest king was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. See, so say, What do I do with all this? How do I even respond to this? My head's spinning. I pray not. I pray there's crystal clarity to it. 
What's the right response? Go to the last verse, verse 15. Go to the end of the last verse. Zechariah, from the word of God, says, And this shall come to pass. What this? All of this. All the prophecy, all the judgment, all the mercy, all the, the, the redemption. All this will come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. You go, this thing just got upside down. Because now you're making a conditional statement that I know I can't fulfill. What are you doing? What are you talking about? What does this mean? It does not mean that all of God's plan, all the prophecies and all its fulfillment is contingent upon you obeying. It does not mean that. All that is going to happen, whether you obey or not. What happens to you will be contingent upon your obedience or not. Historically speaking, we know this to be true, right? This prophecy is made 500 years before the coming of Christ. What happens from the time of the prophecy of Zechariah to the time of coming Christ? Were the Jews radically obedient? Just the opposite, right? And Christ still came. The high priest, eternal king, still came. He still fulfilled the office. So we know that all of this happening, God's will happening, and his plan happening, is not contingent upon our obedience. But what is contingent upon our obedience is the covenant made. You remember the flying scroll? It wasn't that long ago. It was a covenant warning. It was a covenant lawsuit, right? And it said, through my son, if you obey me, here are the blessings. Reject my son and disobey me, and here's the curse. And so this is taking us back to the personal, immediate application for our lives in light of all of this testimony. And it's extraordinary. And I say a bit overwhelming. It is. My response The blessing that will come from this is contingent upon my submission and obedience to this high priest and king. I need to say that again. You receiving and experiencing all the blessings that will come forth from this is contingent upon your submission and obedience. And I say that intentionally. Submission and obedience to this high priest and king. No submission, no obedience. Go back and read the last three visions. Those are yours. They're yours. First John chapter 3. And this is God's command. It doesn't get any more straightforward. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him. Temple. And he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. The voice of the Lord that we are called to diligently obey. The voice of the Lord was revealed in the law and the prophets. The voice of the Lord was revealed most specifically in the person of Jesus Christ, the high priest, eternal king. The voice of the Lord is revealed specifically in his word which many of you hold in your hand right now. The voice of the Lord has been revealed and testified again and again throughout the history of his church, the movement of history. The only question, the most salient question for us this morning, in light of verse 15 and all these prophecies, is will you, are you, in light of this truth, diligently obeying the voice of the Lord? Diligently 
emphatically, radically, completely. You put in the word you want. Not just kind of, yeah. But hearing his word, knowing his word, submitting to his word, every fiber of your being, every moment of every day. Are you? You and I, if we know Christ and have the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Triune God, if we know Him, we can no longer claim disability. If you have Christ, you're no longer spiritually disabled. You don't need the ramp or the elevator or the wheelchair in Christ. Unwilling, maybe, to obey, but not unable. The Bible says that those who are in Christ are filled with the power and can, Paul, Philippians 4, do all things through Christ who gives us the strength. We can do all things through him. Strength to overcome our spiritual disability. Strength to live holy lives. And that means, in its most radical sense, that in Christ you can have a real, living, dynamic, daily love relationship with the creator of the universe, your father. It means that there's peace between you and him. It means that you now have the power, no longer disabled, to relate to one another in love. (laughs) We can be brothers and sisters to one another and really love each other, that we're not disabled from that any longer. It means... That every single sin you're battling with right now is not insurmountable. That means every sin, and you know which one that you're battling with most at this very moment, is surmountable in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it every single time. Not just sin, but temptation to sin every time. God's saying, right here, right here, right here, here's my son. Come here. Every time. An extraordinary thought. Not only do we have Christ as the, as the priest who sits in the throne to intercede when we screw up, but he's there before we screw up. After the sin and before the sin, the whole time, why? You say, why? Why this magnificent concern for my spiritual well-being? Why? I'll tell you why. And it's not about you. Well, I don't like that a bit. This sounds a lot about me. It's not about you. Why? Why were you saved? Because of his radical love for you? Yes, in part, but not the reason. Why were you saved? Why were you called out of the darkness? Why are you here this morning? Why is he giving you the word of God? Why is he growing you? One purpose. You know what it is. So that on that day, when he comes again in glory, and the sin is wiped away, you, me, the church, the bride, will glorify the Father. Will bring glory to God the Father. That's why. It's not about us. We're caught up in it. How extraordinary. How extraordinary that we get caught up into this glorification. But it's about God, the Father pouring out His glory upon the Son, and the Son pouring out His glory upon the Father, and we're caught up in it all. Extraordinary. It's extraordinary. That's a whole other sermon. Yeah. Say, let's go. Okay. It means that we can be that godly husband to our wives. 
It means wives, we can be those wives that are honoring to our husbands. It means children, that we can obey and submit to our parents in love. Because we're no longer disabled by the sin that causes us to rebel against our parents whom we say we love. It means, workers, that we can be faithful employees without making our job an idol. It means that we can be stewards of our finances without making our finances something over us. It means we can exercise our gifts and our talents in the bride. Because we see the bride and love the bride. It means, listen closely, that we can love God first above those that we also love. It means that we can love God more than we love our husbands and wives as we're called to. It means that we can love God more than we love our children and our grandchildren as we're called to. It means that we can day by day through the means of grace be transformed into that bride that he desires us to be. So we say thanks be to God, our high priest and eternal king, Jesus Christ. The promises and the prophecies made through Zechariah have come and are coming true, fulfilled in him. And as a result, all those who repent of their sins and put their faith and their hope in this priest king, all those who submit and follow his voice daily will not only be saved, but sanctified and glorified. Made radiant for him. Glorious for him. If your desire in life is anything other than bringing God glory, it's the wrong desire. This high priest, eternal king, Jesus Christ, came to make you into someone who glorifies God. By his grace and his mercy, we will become that beautiful bride. Together. Let's pray. Father, in light of this word, I find myself wholly inadequate, radically disabled, scared. Unworthy. And at the same time, overwhelmed with hope. We know, Lord, that we cannot stand in the presence of this priest king. We can't. We know that when he comes again in glory, you tell us that the rocks 
We will cry out for the rocks to fall upon our heads, but not those who know Him, not those who have been redeemed. We will desire Him. We will desire Him then if we desire Him now. Father, I pray for you by the Holy Spirit to to show us this man. Zechariah said, behold the man. Pontius Pilate said, behold the man. I pray that we will behold him as he truly is. The priest, the king that did the work to buy us back and build his temple. Bless us even though, the, even though we're unworthy. Sanctify us even though we fight against it. And for the sole purpose of bringing your Father honor and glory, see us through to the very end. Make us that bride. In Christ's name, amen.